This is Transmission Interrupted, the podcast series from NEETEC, the National Emerging Special Pathogens Training and Education Center. Welcome to Transmission Interrupted from NEETEC. Hello, and welcome to Transmission Interrupted. My name is Lauren Sauer, and I'm the director of the Special Pathogens Research Network at NEETEC and an associate professor at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. For those of you not yet familiar with NEETEC, our mission is to set the gold standard for special pathogens preparedness and response across health systems in the United States with the goals of driving best practices, closing knowledge gaps, and developing innovative resources. NEETEC works alongside and in cooperation with the CDC and is funded by ASPR, the Administration for Strategic Preparedness and Response. Joining me today as co-host is Ms. Rachel Luckadoo, a public health lawyer and assistant professor at UNMC with me. Hi, Rachel. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Lauren. Happy to be here. Rachel and I are coming together for the second episode in a three-episode series to talk to you about pathogens and pop culture. Pathogens are everywhere, and we're going to bring you some of the best and brightest experts to get a reality check on what's science and what's Hollywood in some of our favorite shows, books, and movies. On today's docket, Ebola and other viral hemorrhagic fevers. And to talk with us about Ebola, Dr. Billy Fisher. Dr. Fisher is an associate professor of medicine and the director of Emerging Pathogens Institute for Global Health and Infectious Diseases at UNC Chapel Hill. Welcome to the show, Billy. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Fair warning to our audience, there may be Jack Ryan or Hot Zone spoilers in this episode, but we feel like they've been out long enough that you should be caught up on them. All right, let's jump right in. So, Billy, today we're talking about Ebola and other viral hemorrhagic fevers and how they were represented on Jack Ryan and the hot zone. I can say I haven't worked with Ebola much, but even I watched Jack Ryan and was like, eh, I don't think this is quite right. Um, But before we get into the shows, can you tell us a little bit about your background with these pathogens and maybe share with our listeners a little bit about what viral hemorrhagic fevers really are? Absolutely. So my background is I'm a pulmonary and critical care physician, and I have been deployed to outbreaks of Ebola virus disease and Sudan virus disease and have cared for patients in both these outbreaks as well as patients with loss of fever. I would say that most of my experience really comes from the bedside, providing direct patient care uh, to patients with these viruses. I co-lead a pretty intensive research portfolio along with uh, David Wall, also from the University of North Carolina try to better understand long-term complications of Ebola virus disease and survivors, as well as to try to understand the prevalence and pathogenesis and even the persistence of, of loss of virus in patients with loss of fever. Now, viral hemorrhagic fevers is this kind of catch-all term to describe a group of diseases that have been associated in some senses with bleeding in patients. It's really an important misnomer because the, the vast majority of people don't have hemodynamically significant bleeding. And so I actually don't love the term to, to describe these really diverse group of viruses, but that's how it's been used in the past. Yeah, that makes sense. So when you see these patients, are they, if that sort of bleeding that's described in popular culture, they don't have that as much? What, what do they look like typically? And then we'll jump into the shows. Yeah, no, I think it's a really important question. And I think this also links back to the role of popular media in uh, medical education because I remember the first time that I was sent into an outbreak, Ebola virus disease, I, I had this um, preconceived notion that was based on what was described in popular media, books, movies. 
as having patients literally bleeding from every orifice. And it was terrifying. I, I can tell you right before I got on the plane, I actually gave my wedding ring to my father because it was my granddad's and we wanted to make sure that it stayed in the family. The reason I tell this story is because I think it highlights how scared I was of Ebola and how little I actually knew about it. And I can tell you, it was terrifying. The worst part was getting on the plane and every moment up until I actually stepped into the Ebola treatment unit. And the most reassuring moment was actually once I stepped in and realized everything that I thought I knew about these viruses was absolutely wrong. And that the patient's they actually looked exactly like the patients that we took care of in Baltimore or in Chapel Hill. They looked like really sick people, but they weren't bleeding from every orifice. And this is actually one of the hard parts about this disease is that it initially presents looking like every other infection in these areas, nonspecific febrile illnesses without any pathognomonic feature, meaning uh, without any symptom or sign that is uniquely associated with Ebola or Marburg virus. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things about these shows, I think, is that fear factor. And I know we'll get into it a little bit, but I think just hearing that, that these are patients, first and foremost, who have diseases that, you know, you have experienced treating the symptoms, you have experience caring for patients like this is, is so important, such an important message to kick off this episode with. So let's maybe just get into some of the pop culture references that we decided to talk about. I think the first is in Jack Ryan season one, which is a TV show based on the Tom Clancy novels, the bad guys, so to speak, they dig up a body in Liberia that was known to have been infected with Ebola, and they make a bioweapon out of it. And we don't have to get into the specifics of this, but that's pure fiction, I think. But then in, in the hot zone, there is a long discussion about this Ebola outbreak that happened several decades ago at this point in Reston, Virginia. And while it didn't infect humans, there was a, a huge scare around that Ebola outbreak that we now call Ebola Reston because of all the chimpanzees that were being infected and because there was such a hard time understanding what was happening in that outbreak. So, you know, these are just two examples. We hear about Ebola in a lot of different stories, actually. But we have two different shows, right? one based on a true story and one that's complete fiction. How well do each of them get it right about Ebola? So I would say both get it pretty wrong. And I think there's important consequences for getting it this wrong. So the fear that is evoked from the book, The Hot Zone. So I'll start with Hot Zone. So it was an incredible book written by Richard Preston in 1994. It was my first introduction to Ebola virus disease and, and filoviruses in general, the family of, of viruses in which Ebola virus and Marburg virus are included, but it evokes incredible fear. And that fear has really important implications. Number one is it prevents people like us from, from going over to outbreaks and providing care to people. I, I will honestly tell you that I was not one of these guys on the couch raising my hand saying, I'm ready to go. My, my route into the field uh, was circuitous, but I'm really glad that it happened. The other thing, though, is that it creates this mythology around the virus and around patients with this infection. And this mythology has sustained really high mortality rates. And it's taken us decades to really chop down or to break through that mythology and start to really reduce that mortality rate. And the good news is that we've been fortunate. So let's talk about the hot zone. So the hot zone describes a couple of different individuals with, uh, with Ebola virus disease. And, and one, there's a man in a waiting room in a hospital and he's vomiting blood everywhere and they talk about the liquefaction of his organs and that's completely fictional. The vomiting of blood, that 
can happen. It typically happens in more severe cases. The amount of blood that is lost from people with Ebola virus disease is rarely ever, if ever, sufficient to actually be the cause of death. Most of these patients really die from a multi-organ dysfunction. The same thing that people die from, you know, bad sepsis or septic shock. So I would say that the book really focuses in on an extreme version of the disease that is extraordinarily rare. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it has an important role in introducing people to these class of viruses, but it does so in a way that evokes such fear that prevents us from responding in, I think, the appropriate way. Oftentimes we'll hear about an Ebola outbreak in a particular country, and then we'll restrict flights from that country. And I would argue that's exactly the wrong response. That will sustain ongoing transmission and increase mortality within that affected area and increase the chances of transmission, not just within that country, but outside the country. We have to respond by really stopping the outbreak out of the source. Let's talk about uh, the Jack Ryan. I'm so not as well-versed on this one, so apologies. But this idea of digging up bodies, I think, is really interesting. There's two parts that I'm going to talk about. Digging up bodies and then this development of a bioweapon. I really hope that nobody is developing this as a bioweapon. But I actually think that the involvement with dead bodies is important. Because one of the, one of the major risk factors for transmission is actually direct contact with an individual who is infected with Ebola virus disease or direct contact with their body fluids or the direct contact with a dead body. With Ebola, unlike with COVID or SARS-CoV-2 virus, the level of virus increases as people get sicker. And some of the highest levels of virus that we see are often in dead bodies. And so the preparation of a body for burial is something that is really sacred, really cherished. It's a custom that is valued and, and highly important in all of our societies. But with somebody who has Ebola, it's an incredibly, it can be incredibly dangerous because the risk of transmission is high. So that risk, that active tradition can be transformed into an active transmission, if you will. I should point out that just because we can detect virus or viral RNA in a, in a body fluid doesn't mean that that is infectious virus and can be transmitted. Again, transmission really requires direct contact with either a person or their body fluids and having direct contact with that body fluid with uh, mucous membranes or openings in your skin. And so this is a high risk event. And one of the things that we have to be careful of is we have to maintain that cultural practice, but do it in a way that is safe. So I'll, I'll give you a direct example. In, in one outbreak that I was in, we saw a body, a patient who died from Ebola. He was buried, um, but not according to the customs of his faith. And close members of his family dug up the body and buried him in a way that was culturally appropriate. And I think that's really something that's to be valued, something that's important. But it was conducted in a way that led to transmission to eight of the people that participated in this, this burial process, and all of them died. So the act of burial is something that we really have to pay close attention to. We have to preserve those customs in a way, though, that also preserves infection control so that we can honor the dead, but do so in a safe way. Sorry, that was a long-winded answer to get at this idea, but I, I, I want to highlight that there are some important aspects of these movies that, that we can take from that, the, and I'm going to say this in the wrong way, the dramatization of these diseases, I think, is incredibly harmful. Yeah, Billy, I think that's really valuable to hear and to understand because I think that's an important impact of these shows. I guess maybe a little less serious question here about how Ebola was portrayed. So in the show, like Lauren mentioned, and as we were just discussing, 
they obtain the Ebola from digging up these bodies and they put it in an ingestible form like a vitamin or a pill or something like that. Hopefully that's not a spoiler five years out. But is that a reasonable way of transmitting Ebola? Yeah, so Ebola is transmitted, again, through direct contact with an infected patient or their body fluids. And it, we believe that it, it enters through mucous membranes, so eyes, nose, and mouth, or through cuts in the skin. And so this idea that we can put it in a form that you would ingest is certainly fictionalized. But the mouth is potentially one way that it can get into your body. Another way is that there is the potential for sexual transmission as well. We're learning this, that even people that survive, there can be persistence of the virus in immune privilege sites, including the testes, and that can lead to potential transmission. So this is also really important from an education standpoint about how do we mitigate transmission after survival. So I think in 2014 or so, there were some researchers suggesting that Ebola had the potential to become airborne. Is that reasonable? Is that a feasible route of transmission? Yeah, really good question. So airborne transmission does not look like a mode of transmission that is commonly seen in outbreaks. In fact, there are really nice epidemiologic studies of households where uh, a family member or household member was infected, that the people who got infected from that initial index case were people who had direct contact with that person. But people who were living in the same households that did not have direct contact with that person did not get infected. So I think that's strong evidence that aerosol transmission is not a major route of transmission or a likely route of transmission. Now, people often counter that argument by saying, well, you know, we can infect uh, non-human primates and um, animal models by artificially aerosolizing virus. And that is true. There have been studies that have uh, led to the infection of non-human primates and um, mice via the artificial aerosolization of, uh, of the virus. And so I, I think it highlights that there is the potential to artificially create aerosols that lead to infection, but that this is not something that is seen in natural disease. So I have a question about the TV show that they made for The Hot Zone after the book, or based on the book. They show a lot of the work that's done at USAMRID on Ebola, and they're all wearing positive pressure suits. I know we don't use positive pressure suits in the, in the field or in the clinical environments where we're working here. Can you talk a little bit about the distinction of that PPE versus the PPE you would use in a clinic or, you know, an Ebola treatment center? Right. Yeah. So the positive pressure suits, which are used in some of the uh, biosafety level four laboratories in the U.S. and Europe, they provide positive pressure to, to the suit so that if there's any holes in the suit, air rushes out as opposed to air rushing in, keeping that person safe. And that's, that's great. It is incredibly difficult to work in that environment, as you can imagine. In the field, it's, it's, uh, we have no positive pressure systems because you have to make an Ebola treatment unit pretty quickly in these outbreak settings so that we can isolate and provide really effective care to patients who are infected. And this doesn't, doesn't often have a lot of the, the infrastructure that's needed for those positive pursuits. But we are pretty well sealed in. In the past, in 2013, we were using um, suits that were made of Ticam, which is this incredibly impermeable material. And it's, it's essentially like being in a Ziploc bag. The suit covers every part of your body except for your head. And then you have a hood that goes over your head and you wear an N95 um, respirator underneath that hood and then goggles over your hood. So you are completely sealed in, not a part of your skin is exposed to air. The downside of this, though, of course, it's really hard to do your job in this Ziploc bag. 
I took in a laboratory thermometer once in my pocket and the temperature inside my suit reached over 115 degrees. So it really limits the time that you can spend in, in that Ebola treatment unit. Now we've gotten a little bit better. We're started, you know, we have um, some different materials, including Tyvek, which is a little bit more breathable, but still it makes for very difficult conditions to work. There's also been really important structural changes to Ebola treatment units that have allowed improved access between the patient and provider. And one example is um, something called the Cube, which was developed by an NGO called Alima, which is really amazing. It's just like literally transparent, six-sided cube that patients can be put into. And you can still enter in with all of your normal PPE. Um, it has an invagination system where you can literally like step into this cube without any PPE on and evaluate the patient, perform ultrasound on the patient, observe the patients, provide medications without PPE. And so that obviously allows you to monitor patients more closely and for longer duration. That's really interesting. And I think, you know, this brings back to this point we've talked about previously, I know, and, and even touched on earlier in this episode of the standard of care and the type of care that these Ebola patients need. Have you seen advances to the standard of care or the way we provide care since that first, you know, known outbreak in Zaire in 1976? Absolutely. Now, I will say I was not there in 76. And the care that they provide in 76 was actually really interesting because it was really good. You know, Jean-Jacques Muyembe was one of the, the key principal physicians there. And, um, and really the description of that time is remarkable. And, and so we've taken lessons from, from their approach, certainly. We've taken lessons from Emory in Nebraska and Bellevue, which also took care of patients with Ebola virus disease in the 2013-2016 epidemic, and really have driven forward this concept of optimized supportive care. And, I, and I'll tell you, a lot of this emanated from from the 2014 epidemic, because the patients looked just like those that we take care of in, you know, Baltimore and Chapel Hill, but the care that they were receiving was vastly different. The care that they were receiving was one of isolation, and that's really effective for preventing transmission, right? If it's in every single body fluid and people are really sick, isolating them is great for preventing transmission, but it doesn't do a lot of good for that person that's isolated. And so this disparity between looking like patients with septic shock and severely ill from sepsis, but not getting that care, I think, was a really important divide that we had to cross. Over the past decade, we have been thinking together and working together to drive this idea that with better supportive care, we can improve survival. Well, it seems like all of that is maybe increasingly relevant because it feels like we're seeing more and more of these outbreaks of viral hemorrhagic fevers. I know we've had two new Marburg outbreaks in the last few months alone. Do you have any thoughts on why that's happening or why we're seeing an increase in outbreaks? It's a really important point, Rachel. And I, I would say not only are we seeing an increase in frequency in outbreaks, but we're seeing an increase in size of these outbreaks as well. And this is something we have to pay attention to. You know, I don't know what is driving this. So the things that I'll say are, are based on opinion, certainly, and conjecture. But I certainly think that climate change is changing the range of some of the potential reservoirs. Potential is a really important word there. I also think that growing disparity in, in economies, I think, is also something that is driving this. We're seeing an increasing size in, um, in people living below the poverty limit. The locations of these outbreaks are not random. They are occurring in areas that both have the likely reservoir, but also 
areas that are incredibly underserved um, with inadequate access to healthcare, with inadequate access to protein sources, with inadequate access to clean water and, and, and other resources. And I, I think that growing population living in that kind of environment is going to increase the chance for, for people to come into contact with the, the natural reservoir. I think also as deforestation occurs, as the population grows and expands into uh, these environments, I, I think we'll see more of these crossover events, which I, I think largely this is preventable, but it, it, it takes a sustained effort to address poverty and reduce inequity and in access to, to healthcare globally. Yeah, I think that's really important and, you know, something that we've actually heard throughout not just this series, but on so many of the Tech podcasts is just this focus on how climate change is impacting our healthcare environment and our healthcare delivery systems and our healthcare needs and how underserved populations, how vulnerable communities, how places without routine access to healthcare impacts in these special pathogen outbreaks so substantially. I think all those things that you just said, they create a susceptible environment, right? And actually what we see with these, with outbreaks of filoviruses is that there's usually a single crossover event. And then the rest of the infections are caused by human to human transmission. And so if you have a natural reservoir and if you increase the susceptibility of the population, you increase the chances that a single crossover event will become a bigger problem. This is really our charge. Preparedness is not just building up resources in the United States but also building up access to healthcare and detection systems globally so that not only do we find these infections or these crossover events, but that we're right there to be able to respond and provide people the kind of care that you and I would want if we were infected. You know, one thing, I'm not sure if I'd call it a silver lining, but one thing that has been coming out of these increased numbers of outbreaks and just our ability to find and respond to them earlier is that it does feel like we're making real progress on our medical countermeasures portfolio for these pathogens, so vaccines and treatments and, and pathogen-specific therapeutics. But, but also, like you mentioned earlier with the CUBE, that we're seeing improvements to the built environment and the standard of care and the, the space, the physical space that we care for patients in. Can you just tell us a little bit about how these new tools, innovation, how our access to medical countermeasures improves your ability to care for patients? Yeah, I, I think this is really such an important topic because it's not one thing. It's, it's not just having a drug or having a vaccine or having a, a really good provider. It really requires... I will refer to this as like the five essence of health system strengthening. And I don't know who came up with this, um, but it, it's really that it's this complement of things that you need um, and they, they don't go in any order, but you have to have the right structure in order to provide good care. The traditional Ebola treatment units that we're accustomed to seeing pictures of from the 2014 epidemic are these, you know, opaque white tents that housed hundreds of, of Ebola patients and you can't see in, you can't see out. You can't monitor patients closely. You can't provide good supportive care in that environment. So really creating the right structure. The cubes, I think, are a really good start. MSF has also developed these Ebola treatment units that have these corridors that you can walk down, um, not in PPE, but um, you can see through plexiglass all the patients. You can monitor, you can provide care. So again, structures that allow you to have increased access between patients and providers, I think, is a really critical piece to not only providing good care, but also learning right? We have to learn in real time. If we fail to learn, we fail to advance that care. That is my second S, having the right people. So both providers that are experienced in providing good supportive care, critical care providers, infectious disease providers, obstetrics and gynecologists to take care of pregnant women, pediatrics to take care of uh, pediatric populations or children, 
I think having the right providers with the right experience is really critical. Having the right stuff, we need the right tools. So quick diagnostics. Typically, patients with Ebola virus disease present on day five to day six after the onset of symptoms. And that's largely because these symptoms are so nonspecific that they don't know that they're infected. And they only present after they don't get better with treatments like antibiotics or antimalarials that they get from the pharmacy. And so any delays in the diagnostics might push these people out of the therapeutic window for these medical countermeasures or these pathogen-specific treatments. So early diagnostics having really good laboratory on-site that can provide diagnostics as well as uh, daily chemistries and hematology, which allow us to provide good supportive care is a critical thing. Having the right PPE to be able to manage that balance between safety to the provider and ability to care for patients. Having the right system for providing care, I think that's another S, maybe my fourth S at this point. So WHO has developed these optimized supportive care guidelines, which protocolizes the care to ensure that everybody receives really that high-level optimized supportive care. And so I think it's that complement that I think is really critical in order to, um, to advance the, the care for patients. Basic science has led us to the development of therapeutics, which I think are really, really important. We have seen the use and operationalization of therapeutics under really two kinds of uh, platforms. One is the MURI platform or the monitored uh, emergency use of unregistered investigational interventions. And this is really a compassionate care program when a clinical trial isn't available, when there's good data to support the safety and efficacy of these therapeutics in these emergency outbreaks with pathogens of, of high mortality that has led us to operationalize some therapeutics and, and really served as an on-ramp for randomized clinical trials that I think that are essential for identifying which therapeutics are both safe and effective. And so the PALM study, I think, is this remarkable trial that was led by the INRB, which is the the National Institute for Biomedical Research in the Democratic Republic of Congo. At that time, it was head by um, Jean-Jacques Mugambe. And then um, the National Institute of Health. This protocol was led, I think, by Rick Davey and, uh, and Laurie Dodd and others who did really amazing work in operationalizing a randomized controlled trial of four therapeutics in the Democratic Republic of Congo in a conflict zone and found that two of those interventions were able to reduce mortality substantially in patients with Ebola virus disease to about the 30% range of all comers. 10% if they had low viral loads, higher percent for patients with higher viral loads. And so I, I think that demonstrates that now not only do we have optimized supportive care, but we also have pathogen-specific therapies for certain species of Ebola virus. And the good news is, is that we have academic and industry researchers that are working on medical countermeasures for every species of Ebola virus and Marburg virus, which I think will be really needed. And I know this is a long-winded answer, and I'm so sorry for that, but I, I really want to tell you, it's not the medical countermeasures that stop the outbreaks, and it's not the vaccines that stop the outbreaks. It's the engagement with the affected population. And this is something that we cannot forget. We started off this podcast talking about how important it is to preserve the traditional practices of people and paying respect to dead bodies. And, and I'll get back to this idea that the more effective we are engaging with communities, that's what ends outbreaks. It's engaging with them and making sure that we understand their needs. They understand what we know about the virus and how we can interrupt transmission. And I think once that is accomplished, then we see a decrease in the numbers of cases. And I think that's such an important point because it's not the fancy virology. It's not the fancy meds. It's really just building trust between affected communities. And the problem, Laura, is that 
the only time they see us in these spacesuits are when these you know emergencies happen. And really, I think what we have to do is shift from these rapid responses to outbreaks into more integrated cycles of preparedness in areas that are underserved, response in areas that are affected, and recovery in areas that have been severely affected by these viruses. I couldn't agree more on that last part. I think there is really meaningful work being done in this space, both at WHO and in in NGOs that respond to outbreaks. But this idea that we drop in, we provide care services, and then we leave is just not acceptable anymore. And I think, you know, we've learned so much in how to build uh, trust and maintain relationships, not just in a response phase, but to integrate throughout the life cycle of an outbreak and to engage really across the whole spectrum of, of healthcare, not just in an Ebola outbreak, but more broadly in how we deliver services. And we don't always appropriately or effectively apply that knowledge, but I think we're making progress. It goes into every element of this, right? Like we need to build trust in community to understand best practices from the from the affected population's perspective. We need to build trust across understanding what type of medical care we're going to provide, what type of services we're going to provide. We need to encourage trust in research so that people participate in these clinical trials or participate in MIRI protocols. And, and so it's so necessary and so fundamental to everything we do. And I'm excited to see more of it systematically put into practice. Absolutely. I think one question I have for you is really on why you do this work. I think we started this conversation talking about how scary it felt the first time you provided or supported a response. But also now, um, and I should have mentioned this earlier, you're one of the newest PIs of the regional treatment centers that work in collaboration with NETAC to build special pathogens readiness across the United States. And so, you know, we're lucky to have your expertise and your experience but I'm, I'm curious how you, how you even got involved and, and why you continue to do this work. My whole life, I wanted to be an infectious disease doctor. I, I suspect I will get a number of calls from real ID docs <laughs> after hearing this. But, um, you know, I was always interested in how infections, and particularly viruses, affect not only the individual, but their families, communities, healthcare systems, and even the economies. I, it just has these really, I think, profound and pervasive impacts beyond just that patient. And so my whole life, I was interested in viruses. And I was really fortunate to work under some incredible physicians, including um, Sharif Zaki, who is a pathologist at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Stuart Nichols, who um, previously led the special pathogens group at CDC. This was even before medical school. And I, I worked with them on Lassa fever and hantavirus, two really interesting viruses. But then I really fell in love with, I shouldn't say fall in love, that's a bad word, but I, I really, you know, um, when I went to medical school and residency, I was really captivated by, I think, the physiology of critically ill individuals, but also um, not only providing care to that individual who's incredibly complicated, but also helping the family get through that process. It always, for me, has been natural to focus on severe viral infections as this kind of complement of my interest in infectious diseases, but also critical care medicine. And serendipity brought me back to Ebola and uh, loss of fever. And for me, 
you know, again, I was not one of these people that um, was raising my hand saying, I will go to these outbreaks to provide care. <laughs> I got sent to the first Ebola outbreak because I spoke French. I had experience living in, um, in resource limited settings, particularly in Africa. And I was a critical care physician. That experience changed my life because I, for the first time, understood, you know, how potentially somebody with my background could have an impact. I've stuck with it over these past 10 years because I really do see the promise of what we're doing. The combination of optimized supportive care with pathogen-specific therapies, I see the promise of making sure that everybody has access to a single standard of care, the same standard of care that you and I would want if we were infected. I see that promise, and I think that's, that's what draws me in. Well, I will say, based on how often my ID doc colleagues are on service, they'd probably still take you. <laughs> <laughs> well, Billy, I think this has been really fascinating. And I personally love hearing your individual and community focus on how we treat and respond to these diseases. I think one of the main takeaways I've gotten from you thus far is that we need to decrease the fear and stigma that are around viral hemorrhagic fevers. Are there any other takeaways you have about these diseases that you want our listeners to know? Yeah, I, I think that's really, really important. If we can break that facade of fear around these viruses, it actually improves our ability to have an impact to reduce that mortality, which ultimately will have another impact downstream of, of reducing fear from these things. I think that's really important. I think the other thing that I, I want you to take from this is that ultimately these are diseases of poverty. And if we fail to address those things that lead to these outbreaks in the first place, the susceptibility of those environments that allow person-to-person transmission, then I think we're going to keep seeing an increased number, size, frequency of these outbreaks. And they're going to result in lives that are lost and lives that are affected that are potentially, I do believe, are preventable. Our response can't start with the response. Our, our, Our response has to begin with preparing, increasing readiness, increasing access to healthcare, increasing access to clean water, increasing access to education, improving the social determinants of health, addressing the social determinants of health. I think that is something that we have to do right now. And I also think we have to engage with at-risk communities before the outbreak. And that includes within our own country, within our own state, within our own region, because I, I think that's where we build the foundation of trust that really is required when, when these outbreaks occur that allow us to be able to respond better and to recover better. Yeah, and I think that last message that you just said ties so directly to what we're trying to do at NETEC and with the regional treatment centers to really build that readiness, build that relationship, share best practices across not just the country, not just broadly, but within our own region, with our neighbors, and with all of the facilities that we may have to interact with in an outbreak itself. Absolutely. Well, Billy, thank you so much for having this conversation with us. It was so great to to walk back some of the information that we see in pop culture around Ebola and other viral hemorrhagic fevers, but also to talk a little more in depth around what these pathogens, what these outbreaks, what they can do and, and what they're really like in the real world. I really appreciate you first having me on, but also really drawing attention, I think, to the needs to address inequity and in access to healthcare. And also, the, I think how important um, being prepared for these infections really is. So thank you both. Thank you. And Rachel, as always, thanks so much for coming on and co-hosting with me. I think this is yet another episode in an exciting series. I agree, Lauren. Happy to be here. 
For those of you listening at home, thank you so much for tuning into this episode on Ebola and other viral hemorrhagic fevers in our Pathogens and Pop Culture series. We hope you'll join us for future episodes on a wide range of topics from healthcare worker safety to personal protective equipment and even more about infectious diseases of all kinds. If you have any questions for NITEC or ideas for future shows, please feel free to contact us at info at or you can find us on the web at netech.org slash podcast, where you can subscribe to future episodes and find more information on today's topic. We'll see you next time on Transmission Interrupted. You've been listening to Transmission Interrupted, the podcast series from Netech, the National Emerging Special Pathogens Training and Education Center. Learn more at netech.org.